1 Corinthians chapter 13 and beginning in verse 1. We'll just read the first three for this week. It says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. I remember seeing the movie Fiddler on the Roof. It focuses on this one family. And the father in the family's name is Reptavia, and his wife, his name is Golda, and they have these three daughters. And, and these three daughters aren't quite cooperating. It's time to get them married off, the oldest right on down. And they're not quite cooperating with the old traditions of the parents making the arrangements and picking the grooms and those things for their daughters. And, and so nothing's quite working out the way that that he planned. And in the midst of that upheaval, uh, Raptavia starts wondering about his own relationship, his own marriage, because he and his wife's parents made the agreement and handed her to him. And they were basically told that you'll learn to love him, but this is your wife. And, and so now 25 years later and three daughters and, and uh, some history together, and he asks his wife, do you love me? She's taken aback by the question. And she says, with everything going on, she says, well, why are you asking me that now? And he says, but do you love me? And she says, oh, you're, you're an old fool. And he says, yes, but do you love me? And her answer to him at first is, for 25 years I've washed your clothes, I've cooked your meals, I've cleaned your house. She pauses for a minute. He says, yeah, but do you love me? And, and then she adds, a, I've had your children, I've milked your cow. And I, th- I thought that line was particularly comical. But, but he's still hanging there with the question. And then she kind of turns and has this kind of moment to herself a little bit with him overhearing. And she says, do I love him? She says, for 25 years, we've lived together. We've fought together. We've starved together. We've shared the same bed. And her final conclusion is, if that's not love, then what is? And he's super excited at that point. You do. You love me. I find myself going through some of that as I read this first part of 1 Corinthians 13 because there are things mentioned in here that seem to in and of themselves be an expression of love. Like giving, like even it says even being willing to sacrifice to the body being burned and, and make those kind of sacrifices. And can that kind of a sacrifice really be made without love? But apparently it's possible. But as we look at it in the Bible here, the whole chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, is dealing with love. And, and it is the more excellent way that he talks about right at the end of chapter 12. Chapters 12, 13, and 14 are actually kind of one big idea. It's dealing with spiritual gifts. And the Corinthian church was, in their use of spiritual gifts, they were seeking places of prominence. Gifts that stood out. Gifts that were showy. Gifts that kind of made you feel important. Make you feel fulfilled. And he started off in chapter 12 saying, look, that's really not the purpose of gifts. It's not to make you feel fulfilled. It's to make you function within a body, a unity of, of the body of Christ within the church. When we get to chapter 14, he's going to delve more specifically into some of those gifts. But in chapter 13, he says, look, let me show you another way. Let me show you a better way to behave together as a church, to function as a church. And you know what? It's not the, it's not the way of focusing on your gifts. It's the way of love. It's the way of putting other people first. It kind of breaks down into three sections. The very first part is showing the prominence of love, how, how love 
really is the first thing and really needs to be the first thing. And that's what we're going to focus on today. And then next week gets into kind of the qualities of love and, and what is love like as we see it fleshed out or strive to flesh it out in our lives and in our relationships. And then lastly, it goes into the permanence of love, that, that love is never fails. It is what's going to be around forever. Today, what we want to focus on is the, the prominence of love. They were focusing on the giftedness, on the skills, the abilities. In those kind of things, we tend to get arrogant. Let's not focus on those. Let's focus on not so much the Spirit's gifts to us, but the the Spirit's fruit in our lives, which one of the fruits, as you read Galatians chapter 5, is love. It's like a breath of fresh air, this passage is. It's it's an amazing passage. It's used for weddings, one after the other. And with all the things that have been happening in 1 Corinthians, with all the corrections that have been made, and all the negative things that the Apostle Paul had to address, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is like, well, it's like a breath of fresh air. In fact, I thought John MacArthur put it very well. He says, this chapter is a breath of fresh air, an oasis in a desert of problems. It is a positive note in the midst of almost continual reproof and correction of wrong understandings, wrong attitudes, wrong behavior, and wrong use of God's ordinances and gifts. Paul's scribe must have breathed a sigh of relief and amazement when the apostle began dictating these beautiful Holy Spirit-filled words. Well, we see the prominence of love throughout Scripture. First John chapter 4, verse 7 and 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And so love is just part of the character and the makeup of who God is, and so it needs to be part of the makeup and character of the Christian and who we are. It's not a new truth. The Old Testament focused on love as well. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, we get what is for Israel, they call their Shema. It's kind of the, the theme verse of the nation of Israel. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. But then when we get to Leviticus chapter 19, he expands that. In Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18, it says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the son of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And you know, if you read that whole chapter, that passage right there is in the midst of the context which is telling them, look, you don't steal from your neighbors. You don't judge your neighbors harshly or falsely. If you own a field... Whatever you drop while you're harvesting your field, leave it on the ground. Don't harvest your field all the way to the edges. Uh, And why? What, What would be the purpose of that? Why wouldn't I pick up the fruit that's on the ground that's like money out of my pocket if I don't pick that up? Why wouldn't I harvest my crop that I planted all the way to the edges? To leave some for somebody else. To care for somebody else. Not just be looking out over after your own well-being. And in the midst of all that description of all these different ways that you should be caring toward other people, he lays down the truth for it. You need to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, in Luke chapter 10, a lawyer would come to Jesus. And this truth sunk into the people. And in fact, the reason I chose this passage other than the other instances of Jesus mentioning this truth is because the person that actually states the truth is not Jesus. Jesus draws it out of the lawyer. It's not something that he teaches him at this moment. It says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. 
So you see the Jewish people studying the law of God recognized that these, the, the law is fulfilled in these two things. If you look at, uh, the, even take like the Ten Commandments that were given kind of the, the cornerstone of the laws of God handed down to the nation of Israel, the first four commandments deal with our love for God. We're not worshiping other gods, not making graving images, keeping the Sabbath. The next six commandments are showing our love to our neighbors through honoring our mother and our father, through not murdering people, not taking their belonging, not bearing false testimony against them or lying about them, not taking their husband or wife in a relationship. Those things are all summed up in the same thing. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so it's an Old Testament principle as well as a New Testament principle. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48, Jesus would say, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Jesus expanded it from not even just loving your neighbors, but even to loving your enemies. Love is supposed to be such an ingrained part of our character because it is such an ingrained part of the character of God. In fact, Jesus said of all the things that can stand out about a Christian, about one of his disciples, this should be the thing. In John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. You know, that's exactly why the Apostle Paul was able to say to the Thessalonians, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Unfortunately, in the Corinthian church, they were having a little more difficult time with that lesson. But they all needed to get to that same place where they recognized the prominence that love needed to have in their lives. And it's the same with ours today. Love still needs to be prominent in our lives individually and in the life of our church as we go forward today. Well, in order to make this point, the Apostle Paul uses comparisons. He keeps comparing love to these different activities. We're going to look at five Five comparisons that he makes. We kind of bind a couple of them together because I think he's binding them together. Now notice that he begins, he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. Now, what he's going to do here is he's going to use hyperbole, right? He's going to use exaggeration. In other words, he's not going to compare love to the smallest of these things. He's going to compare it to the largest of these things. When he talks about speech, he's going to talk about the speech of men and of angels. When he talks about faith, he's going to talk about a faith that can move mountains. He's going to talk about understanding all mysteries, all understanding, all knowledge. So he's going to be comparing it to like the highest level that anyone could possibly achieve in any of these things. He's going to compare that to love. And then not only that, but he's comparing that to him. Because he uses the first person, singular. He says, if I can speak with the tongues of men and of angels... In other words, it's not just us. It's somebody that already has one of the gifts that has been mentioned in chapter 12 toward the end because he has the gift of apostleship. He says, look, even if I, that person that has that gift of apostleship, can do these things to this level, 
Still without love, they come crashing down. Well, the first comparison that we see is eloquence. That eloquence is no substitute for love. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, there's probably a couple different things actually involved here. Speaking of tongues, I think he's talking about eloquence, but I think it goes beyond that. It goes beyond that probably a little bit to the, the, their use of tongues that they've mentioned, which he gets back into that more deeply in chapter 14, so we'll kind of leave that for then. But he says, look, whether I'm speaking in these languages of men, language of angels, he says, even if I could do that, even if I could do that, have that kind of eloquence and that kind of giftedness in that area, then uh, if I don't have love, it still is like what? It's like clanging gong or a, or a cymbal. This would have kind of struck at the heart of their pagan experience because in, in Corinth, they did have, there was like three different of their gods that part of their worship was to speak in ecstatic sounds and, and make these ecstatic noises and there would be cymbals and there would be gongs going off and trumpets sounding. So he's really kind of comparing it to their past experience a little bit as well. But he says, look, even if I could speak with such eloquence and giftedness, if, if that's not accompanied with love, then it's, it's like that gong or like a, like a clanging cymbal. In other words, it's just kind of point, it's irritating even. Did any of you remember the gong show? In the gong show, they would have these people with a talent that they had. They might sing or they might juggle or they might dance or do these different things. And then you had this panel of these uh, actors and actresses or, and they would have to judge the person based on how well they think they did. And if they think that you did not do very well, there was a big gong behind them. And they would get up and grab this big mallet and they would hit that big gong and gong. And when that gong went off, it meant you're done. Just quit. Whatever you're doing, stop it. Because you got gonged. It's bad. You're not winning. You're out. But it's just this big gong, ugly kind of noise. Well, that's what he's describing. Symbols. Right now, symbols as a musical instrument, those big they have their place, okay? In a marching band, occasionally. It's a good time for a psh. But you ever notice it is occasionally. The cymbals is one instrument that you never see a solo on, right? It's, it's, you're never, we're never gonna have special music of the cymbal up here. Why? Because it's one of those things that when somebody hits it, they're like, everybody's like, oh, did you have to do that? It's that kind of a thing. And that's what he's saying is that our speech, as eloquent as we might make it, if we don't have love, that's what we're you know, it kind of goes back, and I, 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 I kind of like to avoid cliches, but on the, at the same time, the reason they're cliches is because they obviously state something that resonates with people. But that old saying, the people don't care what you know till they know that you care. It's that kind of an idea. Have you ever been around somebody that's spouting off a bunch of facts that you agree that they're probably right, but it's just kind of irritating you? That's what we are if we're trying to speak, but we don't care about the people that we're speaking to or speaking with. The words themselves do not mean that the reality of the love is there. So the first comparison he makes, he says, eloquence is no substitute for love. Well, then he goes on from there and he talks about Bible knowledge. Now, this is where we kind of combine a few things together, as I believe he's doing. He says, if I have prophetic powers, which prophecy is how we got our Bible, prophetic powers and understand all mysteries. Mystery usually refers to something in the Word of God that was hidden from ages past, but is revealed to us now. And he says, if I have a clear understanding of all mysteries and all knowledge, but no love, then it comes up bankrupt. And you know this one for us, this is a big deal. 
we focus a lot on our Bible knowledge and our understanding of the Word of God and that it's our map for life. This is what we make our decisions based on. This is where we decide what we believe is what's consistent with the Word of God and how we act, how we behave, what's consistent with the Word of God. Well, this, this is one of those places where the Bible says, look, if you have that down in every other area, but you miss this one thing that the Bible teaches heavily, you miss this one thing about loving other people, then you have missed the boat. You know, this is kind of what the Pharisees felt too, right? They were the people with the task of knowing the Word of God and teaching it to the people of Jerusalem and of the nation of Israel. But they were people that found ways, found loopholes where they could make everybody else kind of follow the Bible and themselves not have to so much. And they always were looking down on the people and judging the people and that's exactly what we need to stay away from. So not that love isn't discerning. Love makes judgments. Love, in fact, we're going to find out next week when we dig into love and what is love about. One of the qualities of love is that it, it is not just a warm, fuzzy feeling. It, it does not tolerate evil. And so it does make discernments about what's right and wrong and those kinds of things. But the way that you approach it ought to be different. It's about a constant balance, which actually the two things fit harmoniously together. Speaking the truth in love. We don't want to sacrifice the truth for love and we don't want to sacrifice love for the truth. In fact, we've gone astray in both of those because love is part of truth and truth is part of love. And so whenever we get off balance to one side or the other, we're violating them both. And so we need to be careful in that. But he makes that comparison. He says, look, even even our understanding of the Word of God, which gives us our understanding of God and gives us our understanding of Christ, even in that, even if I had understood all mysteries, all knowledge, if I didn't have love, still I'm nothing. And then he compares also to faith. Faith is no substitute for love. And he mentions a faith that can move mountains, but have not love. I am nothing. Like I said, he's not comparing these to little ideas. He's comparing love to huge ideas. Right? When, you, when you're talking about faith, faith is the Apostle Paul, probably as much or more than anybody else, um, really upholds the idea of faith throughout his writings and his teachings. He teaches that it's by faith alone that we're saved. But you know what? We're saved by faith. We're saved because of love. Right? The the two have to go together. Because we're saved by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. But why did Jesus Christ go to the cross to die? He went to the cross to die because of love. Because of the love that He has for us. And so the Apostle Paul says, look, even if I, even if I have faith that I can overcome obstacles, I can do great things, I, I can meet all the challenges, all that kind of stuff, if I have all of that, but I don't have love, then he says, I am on the losing end of this. I am, he says, nothing. I'm nothing. Then he compares it to generosity. Generosity is no substitute for love. If I give away all that I have, and the word give there, the, the idea of this word is that you, give, you are giving a kind of a, a small amount regularly. And so it's the idea that you kind of set up a program, like say you've got a bunch of wealth, and you say, I'm going to give all my wealth to the poor, so I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to set up all my wealth so that this much, maybe this much every week or this much every month, goes to whatever I want it to go to. And it systematically is going to end up giving all of my possessions eventually to, to the poor or to the, whatever your charity you're looking at, whatever you're looking at uh, giving it to. Now that's amazing, isn't it? 
He's talking about somebody giving up over a period of time, giving everything that they have to this. But he's saying that it's possible, it's possible even to do that and not be and and not contain love. Why? You know, because our our corrupted nature, the sinful nature that's within us, it has an amazing capacity of making everything about us. And so it has a it has a way of corrupting so many different things. Even good things that we can do can be corrupted by a a self-centered motive that's inside of us. You know, it's kind of like Jesus ran into this with the Pharisees. Think back to Matthew chapter 6. He said, your righteousness has got to be above what they see in the Pharisees there. Which to them, that was like, are you kidding me? Who's above them, right? But Jesus says, look at what they do. They go stand out on a street corner to pray, have these prayer gar- things on their garments that would indicate that they're a very prayerful person. And they spread these things out and they make wide themselves and they put on this big demonstration praying out loud for everybody to see. He says it's a show. He said, you know why they prayed? They prayed because they wanted everybody to look at you and say, wow, now there's a guy that prays. There's a godly guy. And since they got what they wanted, then God feels no compulsion to answer that prayer because they got what they were in it for. So we'll leave it at that. Jesus says, you know, when you pray, don't let it be a show. Go into a closet. Go where it's just you and God. God who sees you in there privately will reward you openly. These are people that when they gave, when they gave gifts, they would make a parade out of it so that everybody saw you come and make your donation, give it to this homeless guy or help this whatever the charity was. They'd make a big scene out of it. Jesus says, yep, they already, they already got their reward. And so he uses these, these different examples when they would fast. When they would fast, they would, they would make themselves look like they're getting run down, like they're wearing out. And so the people would ask them, man, are you okay? You look, oh, well, I've been fasting. I'm... They're doing everything for a show. It's not, none of it's to be a show. So what, so what is it about? Is it really about their fasting to God? Is it really about their praying to God? Is it really about their care for that one person to give that person something? No, it was all about them. You know, a while back in our, in our adult Sunday school, somebody said that somebody had, one of the people in our adult Sunday school said that somebody had told them, you know, the things that you do, you do for yourself. You're not doing them for other people. You're not doing them for God. And I, I can laugh because I know the person and, and from what, I could see I would disagree with that vehemently. But you know what? Then, and we, we kind of all laughed about it. But then we said, well, you know what? Are you? <laughs> and we kind of laughed. That was in joke too. But, but then we ended up talking about how, you know what? We can. We can do things that are good things, even great things, in order to be seen by others, in order to look good at... We can do that more out of a self-interest than a love for other people. And he's saying, look, that even if we give, it needs to be, we need to make sure we need to guard our hearts, check our hearts, that love is what's prominent in our life and that, that we're doing this out of love. It doesn't mean stop doing it. It just means get your motive on board. Right? Guide your heart. Lead, lead your emotions. Lead your heart. Guide your heart into doing the right thing for the right motives. Let yourself grow in that area of love for those 
other people. And then lastly, he brings in this other sacrifice is no substitute for love. He says, even if I give my body to be burned, and there's a little bit of a debate about what he means by that. Um, some people think that he meant slavery, sell yourself into slavery, because sometimes they would like like branding cattle with a hot iron. They would brand slaves. And so they say, oh, they're, they're not talking about death. They're talking about this because um, it wasn't until the Dark Ages, actually, when the when the Catholic Church was persecuting people that didn't uh, follow the Catholic Church, that burning at the stake really became more of a prominent thing. Um, but I, I still think, I still lean toward, I think it's talking about giving their body to be burned. Um, in other words, martyrdom. And, and he's saying that you can even commit martyrdom. Can you really? Can you really even sacrifice to the giving of your life and not have love? And the truth is, yeah. If you look through history, you can even find cases where people suffered those things. Why? For a name. So that they would be remembered. So that they would be honored. So that they would be... And, and they made no bones about it in some of those cases. Back throughout history in different pagan religions, you can find people doing all kinds of things to themselves, marring themselves, cutting themselves, all these things just to look more spiritual, more devoted to God. <clears throat> Monasticism, I think, kind of does the same thing. Right with the monasteries and uh, monks and, and, and the nuns and all that kind of kind of stuff. If you look down through history, what happened is Christianity was persecuted for so long that if you were a Christian, you you meant it, right? Because you were p- willing to pay a high price for it, possibly even your life. But then down through the ages, what happened is uh, when Constantine took over and ba- basically kind of initiated what we'd call the beginning of the Catholic Church, and he made the the church now the official the official faith of the Roman Empire. Now Christianity went from being persecuted to being popular. And so you had people labeling themselves Christians that really weren't probably Christians. And so the church kind of gets a whole different view of Christianity on it. Right? Yeah, you still have your people that are committed, that are faithful, but now you have other people that are doing all kinds of things and, and not living a very Christian life at all and bringing some paganism in with it and everything too with some of their festivities and it's getting kind of melded together. And so then what happens is people say, well, that's not us. What is us? And then they start to form monasteries and things, making these higher commitments than the Bible calls for or different commitments than the Bible calls for, I should say. Why? To try to set themselves apart. Set themselves apart from that. But the point is, there's, you know what? A lot of the great things, and he lists great things here. He says there's a lot of great things that we can do, but you know what? If love is not part of our makeup, if love is not our motivation for doing these things, if we're not genuinely concerned about other people and genuinely devoted to God, then we are missing the mark. What he's shooting for in the Corinthian church is a group of people that remember as we started the letter we're saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. They're dividing themselves up and each of them claiming superiority over the other by who they're following. You get farther in, they're taking one another to court over different things. Chapter 7, their marriages... 
their their perspective on marriage is not healthy. It's not good. Um, all the way through the book, you're following these different things, different ways. And even now in spiritual gifts, they're finding ways to use their spiritual gift to elevate their own platform, to raise themselves up. And the Apostle Paul says, look, you're getting it all wrong. It doesn't matter what your gift is. I mean, it's given to you for a reason. It's useful. But if you're not using it in love, let me show you this better way. This better way is to not try to raise yourself up through your selfish ambitions. This better way is to care about others. It's about to love one another genuinely. To care for one another deeply. It's about having love be a prominent place in your life.